Periodically, I get to fill in for Matt. And so a while ago, quite a while ago, actually, um, I started this series. I thought, well, when he calls me, I'll know what I'm supposed to teach on next. And so I taught patience. I taught kindness, envy, boasting. And that brings us today to pride. Today, we're going to talk about pride. Yay. (laughs) Pride's the big one, man. Pride's the big one. And I remember thinking about this when I first saw this list. I thought, man, pride's going to be the easy one. Pride's going to be the softball. Not because it's easy to talk about. It's it's not going to be any fun. (laughs) I'll warn you. (laughs) The reason it's the easy one is because on some of these other ones, I have to spend the first 15 to 20 minutes convincing you that you struggle with it. Right? Because we don't want to admit that we're unkind. And so I have to convince you that you're unkind and then I can help you become kind. Jesus can help you. He can show you what he's shown me. We don't want to admit that we struggle with envy, right? So I have to convince you that you're envious, that I'm envious. And then we can look at the Bible and see what it says about envy. But pride's easy. Most of us will cop to pride. Most of us will say, yeah, from time to time, I struggle with pride. We might not consider ourselves a proud person or say that we're prideful, but we would say, yeah, from time to time, I struggle with pride. And if that's you, if you'll admit that, then here's the big question for this morning. What are you doing about it? C.S. Lewis has a great section on pride in his book, Mere Christianity. And we're going to reference it multiple times today because it's just brilliant what he says. But here's, here's how he starts out speaking about pride. He says this, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment, or even common sense. Lewis says, pride is spiritual cancer. And the Bible would tend to agree, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, is what that verse actually says. We like pride goes before a fall, like, hey, don't trip on that, and you fall over, like it's a silly thing. No, no, pride goes before destruction. That's what that verse says. So if this is a cancer, what are we doing about it? Because the treatment for cancer is always radical. And so this morning, we're going to talk about pride and it's gonna be a little radical. It will probably be a little painful because cancer is typically removed by surgery. And in order to have surgery, we have to be cut open. We don't like that, but it's good for us. It has been good for me this last week and a half studying pride. Painful at times, humbling, which is the point actually, but but good for me. It's been good. I hope it'll be good for you. We're going to do a case study on a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. So grab your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter four, all right? If you're at Psalms, keep moving forward, Proverbs, right? If you get to the short books, go backwards, right? Daniel chapter four is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is the fourth installment, chapter four, of the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter one, we meet Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon and he's on a crusade to conquer the world, And in his conquering of the world, he conquers Judah and Jerusalem. And he sacks it, he destroys it, and he takes all the goods from the temple. 
and he takes all the people and he hauls them back to Babylon. And he takes certain young men and he tries to turn them into and conform them. He tries to turn them into Babylonians. Education, diet. And we meet four guys in that first chapter who refuse to be conformed to their culture. They say, no, we won't be conformed to your culture, Babylon. We serve a greater God. It's Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what happens? God blesses them. And they're wiser then and healthier than all of the other men that Nebuchadnezzar is training. And Nebuchadnezzar notices this. Wow, that God of Daniel, there's something there. But it's still Daniel's God. It's not Nebuchadnezzar's God. He just knows about him. And then we see Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two. Now chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream of this huge statue, head of gold, torso of bronze, iron legs, feet that are like half iron, half clay, cannot figure out what's going on, calls in all the wise men. The wise men can't figure it out. Not so wise, these wise men. It's an honorary title. So then he calls Daniel in and Daniel tells him. Daniel tells him, sorry, king, I can't interpret your dream, but I serve a God who can. And then he explains to him how this statue really represents all the kingdoms of the earth that are gonna come after him. It's an amazing prophecy, super cool. And King Nebuchadnezzar is like, wow, the God of Daniel is a powerful God. But he's still Daniel's God. He's not Nebuchadnezzar's God. So then we have chapter three. We know that it's still Daniel's God and not Nebuchadnezzar's God because in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar builds a God, right? So that can't be your God if you're just gonna randomly build a God. I build a huge golden statue and everyone must bow down to it when the music plays. And if you don't, I will throw you in the fiery furnace. We know the story. Yeah, totally awesome and really creepy Sunday school story, right? And so what do they do? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they will not bow down because they serve a true and living God and that's a statue. And so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And what happens to them in the fiery furnace? Nothing, a light tan. They're just walking around, it's nice in here. It's pretty sweet. And there's a fourth person in there, it's Jesus. And he glows and even Nebuchadnezzar looks in and is like, what is going on? I sent three men in, they should be incinerated. The guys who threw them in died. These these three guys should be incinerated. There's a fourth guy and they're just walking around having a good time in there. Man, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he is a powerful God. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree. No one can say anything against or do anything negative towards that powerful God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he's still their God. He's not Nebuchadnezzar's God because in Nebuchadnezzar's own mind, he is God. And so we get chapter four and here's how it goes. We're gonna start in verse four. It's autobiographical, interestingly, So Nebuchadnezzar wrote this. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar was one of the authors of the Bible? You didn't know that, did you? See, you've learned something today. Here's what he says. I, verse four, Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now remember at this point, he is the absolute ruler of the earth. Any known area, he's conquered it. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, have you heard of China? Yeah, I own it. 
Heard of India? Yeah, I own it. Absolute ruler. And he has this dream about a tree with this huge trunk and the leaves of this tree spread over the whole earth and all the earth is gathered and feeds underneath the tree. And then an angel comes down from heaven and makes a proclamation, cut down that tree and leave nothing but the stump. Strip off its leaves, break its branches, send it through the wood chipper, destroy the tree. And then in his dream, the tree suddenly becomes a man because dreams do that, they're weird, right? Like you're in one place in a dream and suddenly, hey, I'm somewhere else and doing something totally different. But that aspect is still over here. Dreams are awesome, I like dreams. So does God. So now that we have the tree cut down, the tree becomes a man and the man, it says, will be cast out. The proclamation is that the man who was the tree is going to go insane. He's going to have the mind of a beast and not the mind of a man. He's going to eat grass. He's going to sleep in the field. His fingernails are gonna grow long as talons and his hair is gonna go wrong and shaggy like an eagle's feathers until seven years have passed. And at the end of seven years, he will look up and he will acknowledge that God is the one true powerful God. And Nebuchadnezzar is freaked out, as you would be. And so he calls in all of his wise men and he tells them the dream. I had this dream. What does it mean? And the wise men say, yeah, I don't know. Over two for the wise men. And so he calls in Daniel. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was afraid of. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. You've grown great, but you will be cut down and you will lose your mind and you will eat grass in the fields and you will live with the oxen and seven years will pass until you acknowledge that God is king, but then you will be restored. And then Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar some advice. Verse 27, here's what he says. Therefore, O king, having heard this proclamation, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. King, stop sinning and start showing mercy and maybe God will show mercy to you. That's Daniel's advice. Do you guys think Nebuchadnezzar changes? No, what fun would that be? (laughs) Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Uh oh. I feel like lightning is going to strike me just for reading that. (laughs) Nebi, bad idea. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has 
departed from you. And everything that was prophesied happens because God always keeps his word. And just like that, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. It's an actual condition. It's called boentropy. It's where you think you're a cow. It's serious. It's, it's true. You look it up. Wikipedia. It's right. It's all there. No, but this, it actually happens. He thinks he's a cow and he goes into the fields and he lives like an animal for seven years. He eats grass and his nails grow just as prophesied. But just as prophesied, after the seven years have passed, we have restoration. Verse 34. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is what we call an attitude adjustment. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is singing a different tune. And verse 36, at that same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Cool story. It's amazing what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. This transformation at the end, this is where we want to be. This is the goal. But in order for Nebuchadnezzar to get there, he's got to deal with the pride in his life. God has to deal with the pride in his life. And in order for us to get here, in order for me to be where I want to be, there's, there's some pride in my life that God has to deal with. And Nebuchadnezzar would say, that's the whole point of his proclamation, you Learn this lesson before you have to learn this lesson. Amen? I want to learn this lesson from Nebuchadnezzar. I, I don't want to learn this on my own. This sounds painful. The lesson itself is painful, but if we can learn it, we can be spared. And so I want to look at pride in Nebuchadnezzar's life and how it reflects things and illuminates things in my own life, maybe in your life too. And then see how we end up here at the end where Nebuchadnezzar is, okay? All right. We're going to start with the character of pride or the nature of pride. And you're going to find it in verse 28. Okay? This is after Daniel has given him the warning. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to change. A year has passed. He has not changed. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say as he's walking on the roof of Babylon? Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty powers as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Here's what pride in my life, in my heart always says. I did it and I deserve it. That's what pride says. Pride says, I did it and I deserve it. I did it. I accomplished this, me, because I'm smarter and I work harder, 
I put myself through college. I didn't actually, didn't graduate college. People say that. <laughs> I've done all these things, therefore, these great things that have happened to me, these blessings that have been given to me, I deserve them. I did it, so I deserve it. And the problem is, this leads us, this leads me to being judgmental and exclusionary and uncompassionate. Like if I struggle, not if, when, when I struggle being judgmental, right? Like talking to someone being like, man, just get it together, man. That judgmental nature of mine, there's a root of pride there. That's pride. That's because I think I have it all together because of stuff I did. I did it. I deserve this. You should work harder. That judgmental nature is my pride coming out. If I struggle with compassion, it's my pride. If I struggle being exclusionary, I don't want those type of people in my circle. I don't want, I don't want them in my home group. Right? Why? Pride. It's my pride. And this doesn't just happen to us when we're successful. This can happen to us when we're struggling. It's the IY statements. You guys know the IY statements? I work hard. Why didn't I get the promotion? I'm smart. Why does anyone put me in charge? I went to college. No, I didn't. <laughs> Why is my career faltering? <laughs> I should have thought that through, actually. <laughs> this is the third service. I didn't realize that till now. <laughs> I've been lying all morning. Um, <laughs> I provide for my family. Why doesn't my wife respect me? I am constantly serving my husband. Why doesn't he thank me? I deserve better. I did it and I deserve it. And when we do that, when I do that, I miss it. Because what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say when I have the attitude of I did it? It's 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. This is what Paul says. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What makes you different from anybody else? Okay, maybe you are smarter than that other person. Did you do that? Is that of you? Did you somehow, when you were being developed in your mother, like grab a few science books and like inject intelligence into yourself? No, that was a gift. It was given to you. Maybe you do work harder than your neighbor, but God's given you the health to do that the physical stamina to do that. And then he's blessed the work of your hands because you don't work. I don't work any harder than a bean farmer in Africa. I work way less hard, but why? My work's been blessed. When I start thinking that I achieve this of my own accord, I miss it. But my pride wants me to think that. Satan wants me to think that. He wants me to be stuck in pride. What about when I think I deserve it? I deserve it. When I start thinking that I deserve something, anything, what it means is I've got the scale wrong. I've got the scale wrong. I think I deserve it because I'm comparing myself to my neighbor. And I go to church and my neighbor doesn't. Or I work hard and my neighbor doesn't. I don't yell at my kids and my neighbor does. Therefore, I deserve. The scale's not my neighbor. It's not my neighbor. The scale's God. It's Leviticus, this one just, every time, every time I get anywhere near this, I just come back to this verse. Leviticus 44, anytime you're feeling a little prideful, Leviticus 11:44. God says, be holy as I am holy. 
I don't like that scale. Okay? That scale doesn't work out well for me. I don't want what I deserve on that scale. I desperately pray to not get what I deserve on that scale. Be holy as I am holy. Man, I don't deserve it. I know what I deserve. I deserve judgment. Praise the Lord, he saved me from it. So we do this. This is the nature of our pride. I did it. I deserve it. We do this secularly. We do it spiritually. I read, I study, I pray, I go to church. That's why these good things happen to me. And it's this very short slide to, well, bad things happen to you because you must not do those things. And now God's a formula and the gospel's gone. Even more common in spiritual pride is to be arrogant about things we don't do. I don't drink. You know, I don't watch those kind of shows. I don't go to bars. That's why I'm blessed. Your life's a wreck. It must be because you do those things. We don't say it, but it, it, our pride wants us to believe that. Our enemy wants us to believe that. And he will continually whisper it in our ear if we're not carefully combating it daily with the truth. The truth that Nebuchadnezzar is gonna realize that we're gonna finish with today. We gotta combat these things with the truth. That's the nature of pride. So what does pride do? I mean, pride does a ton of things, but in this story, I see three. The first one is this. Pride pursues the wrong things. It's verse four. Go back to the beginning and here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I had comfort and prosperity. I've spent my life pursuing comfort and prosperity. I conquered the world. I'm in my retirement years and now I deserve this comfort and this prosperity. That's what the Babylonian culture idolized comfort and prosperity. Do you guys know of any other culture in history that really values comfort and prosperity? It's, uh, yeah, this is us. And I can get sucked into this, spending all my time and energy seeking comfort and prosperity. And I have to stand back and ask myself, this is one of those things that cut me wide open this week. Am I pursuing things that elevate me or am I pursuing things that elevate the kingdom of God? Because here's the problem. Pride doesn't just want comfort and prosperity. It has to have them. And it will get them at all costs. And then when it has them, it's not enough because pride is essentially competitive. That's what Lewis says. Lewis says, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or more clever or better looking than someone else. If everyone was suddenly rich and clever and good looking, what would there to be to be proud about? See, our pride's competitive and it's never satisfied. And so that competitive nature in us destroys relationships. That's why it says love isn't proud. It ruins love when I do this and I do this. And so I have to ask myself, what am I pursuing? And the ultimate litmus test for me has been, what do I pray about? What do I pray about? Because that reveals in my heart what I'm pursuing. Do I pray for the peace of my city or do I pray for the prosperity of my business? 
Do I pray for the salvation of souls or do I pray for relief from discomfort? Do I pray for wisdom and discernment or do I pray about like which new car I should buy? Do I pray for opportunities or do I pray for privilege? Now, don't get me wrong. It is not bad to pray for the prosperity of your business. It is not bad to pray for relief from discomfort. We have a good father who wants to give us good things. Those are good, but they can't be all we pray about. It's like this. I was talking with my wife about this yesterday. And she's like, she says, she says, it's like your diet, not like going on a diet, but like if you were to evaluate what you eat, she likes to do this with people, sit down, evaluate everything they eat and help them like make a plan to just be healthier. And she's not extremist about it. She's not like, well, all you can have is Brussels sprouts and kale because people will fail and no one will want to be around them. So <laughs> she's realistic, you know, cut down on this, cut back on this. So in your diet, she says, you can have potato chips and you can have some candy and you can have some fried food. Thank goodness, because fried food is delicious. <laughs> but if that's all you eat, you're going to be very unhealthy. And if we, all we pray for is ease and prosperity, we're going to be very unhealthy. How about this? Do I pray? Do I pray? Really? Not like with my kids before dinner or like that two second thing I do with my wife. Do I pray? Because if I'm seeking things to fulfill my pride, they're secular things. And I don't need to pray to get those. I can get ease. I can get comfort. I can get prosperity. But if I'm seeking God's things, if I'm seeking the peace of my city, if I'm seeking joy, if I'm seeking peace that transcends circumstances, if I'm seeking the salvation of a loved one who's walked away, I am going to have to pray. I have to pray for those things. I can't do them. Do I pray? It's a good test for me to evaluate my prayer life because what I pray for will often point back to this pride area in my life that can come out. The next one, and it's a short little point, is this. Pride surrounds itself with the wrong people. Okay, now remember our story. Here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this giant tree. It's gonna be cut down, blah, blah, blah. This is not a hard dream to understand, okay? Like the kids in the Sunday school, even before you tell them what happens, they got a pretty good idea about what the dream is, okay? So then Nebuchadnezzar grabs all these wise men and they come in, they're like, well, I don't know what that dream is about. What could it possibly mean? Don't eat pizza before bed. (laughs) It's interesting, when I studied this, people who know a lot more well, I, I know none, so any would be more Aramaic than I do, right? They say that in chapter two, what it says is the wise men could not interpret the dream. It's a crazy dream with the statue and the gold and thing. But in this one, it says the wise men would not interpret the dream. Because here's what happened in chapter two. In chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar says this, if you don't interpret that dream, I'm going to rip you limb from limb. And that was not an expression, Okay. He meant it. And so now you grab the wise men back in and they see this thing and they're like, well, this means the king is going to be cut down. I'm not going to tell him. Aren't you going to tell him? I am not. I have no idea what it means, Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because a proud person does not like correction, refuses to hear correction, gets extremely defensive in the face of correction. My pride doesn't want to admit I was wrong. 
So the question I have to ask myself is, when's the last time someone told me a hard truth in love? Or have I made myself out to be the type of person that people are scared to do that of? Because they don't think I'll listen. When's the last time I asked for a hard truth in love? Hey, give me your honest evaluation of that. And not in a veiled attempt for flattery, okay? Because we do that too. Hey, tell me what you thought about my sermon yesterday. Hoping they'll say, oh, it was amazing. All you need to do is do it more often, right? That's a veiled attempt for flattery. That's not what I want. I mean, when you sit down with a friend and you look me in your eye and say, hey, how am I doing as a friend? Honestly, no repercussions. I want to know. Failings, shortcomings. Proud people, proud people can't do that. They don't do that. When's the last time you told someone a hard truth in love? When's the last time you were Daniel in this story? We don't do it. Why? Because we have this expression, I wouldn't want to hurt their pride. Seriously? Man, I don't want to mess with their cancer. That could be bad. Wouldn't want to cut that out of them. They might feel better. What are we doing about talking with each other? And then the most importantly, like, are we promoting these kinds of conversations in our family, in our relationships, in our community groups? Are we, are we being open to these things? Because that's, that's good, that's helpful. All right, so pride pursues the wrong things. Pride surrounds itself with the wrong people. Pride refuses to change. Okay, you guys ready for the open heart surgery? This is the open heart surgery portion. Pride refuses to change. And here it is, it's Daniel 27. Daniel gives his advice to King Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, stop sinning. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I don't want to stop sinning. I like sinning. Because his pride likes that. And here's the question I have for us today. It's not for everybody in the room, but for some of us, probably more than us who want to admit it. Are you stuck in a sin cycle? Is there an area in your life that you just keep messing up in? You keep blowing it. Is there an area in my life? There's, <laughs> yeah. I keep blowing it. And I've tried to change and I've tried to fix it and I continually, continually fail and I'm stuck in this cycle. And it's time to honestly ask ourselves, is the root of that thing pride? Or maybe it's not the root. Maybe it's the water that feeds the root. Because here's the thing. In order to break out of a cycle of sin, I have to be willing to be broken. And we don't like to be broken. It's scary and it's embarrassing and it's hard. And our pride whispers in our ear, no, no, no. They'll think less of you. It's more important for your reputation than for healing and so we're stuck and we get stuck in these perpetual sins and we won't change. I just refuse to change and the cancer grows and grows and grows. Maybe you struggle with addiction, alcohol, marijuana, paid medication. It's not debilitating, but in your heart of hearts, you know it isn't right. But to ask for help would mean swallowing your pride and allowing, you, you're afraid. I'm afraid people might think I'm an alcoholic or an addict 
Or what if I do swallow my pride and I do ask for help and they rally around me and then I relapse and fail? What would happen then? And so we, we're stuck and our enemy loves it and our pride won't let us escape and ask for help. You know, we have married couples who come to Edgewater to get marital counseling from other churches because they don't want people at their churches to know they have marital problems, which means I know that we have people from our church who go to their church for marital counseling. So it's like this big like marriage swap thing. Why? Because I don't want anybody to know that I'm having struggles in my marriage. Really? Talk to anybody who's been married for 50 plus years. What will they tell you? There was times of struggle. But we don't want to admit it. I don't want people to think that about me. You know, those people who are going to another church to do it, at least they admit it. How many marriages have been destroyed because the husband and the wife won't even admit to each other that they need help? Because we're too proud. Our pride keeps us from doing that. It's exactly what the enemy wants and it's exactly why God is adamant about ridding us of it drastically so if necessary, because it'll lead to our destruction. Man, I'm failing as a parent. I don't know what to do. My kids are running me over. Everyone else seems to have it figured out and I'm too ashamed or scared to ask for help because they'll think I don't know what I should be doing. Man, I have this, this image of myself. I don't want people to think differently about me. So I don't want to talk about my struggles with depression or eating disorders or pornography, that would be embarrassing. Open heart surgery, guys, sorry, it's, it's, it's not light, but this is what the enemy wants. He wants your pride to keep you stuck. He wants my pride to keep me stuck. And God loves us too much to let us stay there, amen? He won't let us stay there. And he wants us to learn this lesson before we have to learn this lesson because our pride keeps us there. Here's what we need, guys. We need Luke chapter 18. Do you guys remember the story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector? You guys remember that story? Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. They both go to the temple. Now we hear Pharisee and we think bad dude that no one likes because that's how Jesus portrayed them. But at that time, it wasn't the case. These were the upstanding citizens of society, right? Everybody looked up to these guys. This is the guy who, if he sat next to you on church, you would make sure he saw that what you're looking at on your phone is the Bible. Like, oh, hey, did you see? Yeah, it's Daniel. Okay, cool. Oh yeah, Daniel four. Right. Perfect. Okay, great. You don't want him to think you're looking at your email. You respect him. And then there's the tax collector, the lowest of the low. Okay. I don't know. I don't think IRS agent to, like really does that in our society. I actually think that the way they talk about tax collectors is the way we might think of panhandlers. People who are standing on the street asking for money. Okay, or thieves possibly. And here's what happens. The righteous man who does everything right and the wretched sinner walk into the temple together and the righteous man walks to the front and he extols to God all of his virtues. God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Thank you that I fast once a week. It's not a lie, he's doing that. Thank you that I give to the poor. He's doing that. Thank you that I follow all the rules. Thank you that I'm so great. God, thank you for making me me. Aren't you lucky, God, that I'm on your team? And what does the tax collector do? 
he beats his breast and he falls on his face and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me. Man, if you're stuck, if I'm stuck, when it happens to me again someday in life, because these are cyclical and I'm stuck in a perpetual sin, I need to ask for help and fall on my face. And I mean that figuratively, but I also mean it like actually fall on your face. C.S. Lewis says in a different book, and I think it's always stuck out to me, like never underestimate the effectiveness of your physical posture on your spiritual state of being. Have you ever fallen on your face in front of the Lord? Maybe today's the day. Maybe you need to fall on your face because in order to break out of the sin cycles, that's what we need. We need help. We need to fall on our face in front of God and he will heal us. That's why this story is so great because of the part we get to talk about in just a second. And before I move on, I just want to make a, a, just this little side note. And it's because I hear this oftentimes. When I say ask for help, I mean, get help. When I need help, I need help. And I talk to people who are like, well, you know, like I called the office and I left a message and that pastor never called me back. And so yeah, that was a couple months ago. And that's why our marriage is failing. Really? Like, I get that. Everyone should always return phone calls, right? I always return every phone call I've ever had. You too? You too? Okay, great. Perfect. Well, as long as none of us are sinners, this is easy. So if you went to your doctor and they got back the x-rays and they're like, do you have cancer? Here's a number for an oncologist. And you called the oncologist and the oncologist didn't call you back. Would you be like, well, I guess, uh, you know, I guess I'm just gonna have cancer then. No. And the other thing about this is I think we miss this. I think we always think that the help we need is a church employee or a pastor. And I think that the reason we do that is because there's still a little bit of anonymity there. I can still go into a pastor's office and I don't think they'll judge me quite as much as if I went to a family member or a friend or someone I respect and ask for help because the pastor sees these kind of broken people come through all the day, so it's okay. But I think the best help we can get if you're struggling through marriage, yeah, call the office, talk to a marriage counselor. They're great. But if you know a godly, long-standing marriage in your life that you respect, it's gonna take swallowing your pride, but we can go and we can humble themselves. Hey, we need help. You know what I'll bet they'll tell you? I remember when we were there. That's what they'll tell you, right? We're struggling with an addiction. Talk to someone you respect who's been through it. Yeah, I was there. I was there. We need to get help, fall on our faces in front of the Lord's. Finally, same question as last time. Are we creating an environment in our families, in our friendships, in our community groups, and in our church that makes this okay? Do you feel okay being broken at church? Do you? If not, we need to make that happen. Because how else are we going to be healed? Amen? I need to be able to be broken with you guys. Because how else do I grow? It's good. This is a good thing. It's a heavy thing, but it's a good thing. Okay, so finally, pride destroys. We don't even have to go there. Pride destroys. Look what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He turns into an animal who cares and thinks only about himself. But, but God redeems. And the amazing thing about this story is that if you're struggling with pride, as I do, as I am still working through this, and probably will be for the rest of my life, 
there's one thing we have to do. One thing, which is good. I, I like one things. Hey, one things are good for me. I need one things. It's verse 38. Actually, it's verse 34. Verse 34, it says this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. I looked up. And he's going to go on in this passage. We'll read in a second. When he looks up, he sees who God really is. If I'm struggling with pride, I've got to have a better understanding of who my God is and how big he is and who I am in comparison. Final quote from Lewis. Here's what he says. In God, we come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to ourselves. God is immeasurably superior to you. Didn't know if you knew that, if you were aware. God's immeasurably superior to us. And unless we know God is superior and therefore ourselves is nothing in comparison, we do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. And then here's what he says, and this is just so accurate. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see anything that is above you. Look up. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does. And when he looks up, what does he see? Let me read this for you. I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. He's an eternal God. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. He sees an all-powerful God. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What Nebuchadnezzar sees when he looks up is an eternal God, an all-powerful God, and a God who does what he wants. Do you guys see God that way? That God is eternal that God's all-powerful, and that God does what he wants? How do you guys feel about the statement, God does what he wants? Do you find that comforting or frightening? If you said both, you are right. But the only reason that statement can be comforting is the way that Nebuchadnezzar finishes this. Look down to verse 37. This is how Nebuchadnezzar physicists it out. This is <laughs> Third service, guys, a lot of Nebuchadnezzars. <laughs> Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. He says, I see an infinite God. He says, I see an all-powerful God. I see God who does what he wants. And I see a God who is good. Nebuchadnezzar says, God is good. This is the dude who was just turned into a cow for seven years. And what does he say? Best thing that ever happened to me. God is good. And when I find myself, when we find ourselves struggling with pride, we have to look back at these characteristics of God. I have to focus on him, what he is, what he says about himself. Look into the word Come to church seeking, God, tell me more about yourself this day. In my prayer time, God, tell me more about yourself. What a great week crust. God, tell me more about you. 
And as we see who God really, really is, our pride just diminishes. And what happens is all those things I was proud of, they just become praise, right? I'm no longer proud of this accomplishment. I just praise God that he let me do that. I'm no longer proud that I get to get up here and talk in front of you guys. I just praise God that he's given me the grace, right? And that he shows up. I don't know how he shows up, you know? I told someone this morning, like, I sit there and I'm so nervous and I walk up here and it's gone. That's not me, okay? That's God. God shows up. Praise God. I can be proud of that or I can just be like, oh my gosh, thank you. Please show up again next service. (laughs) And when we see this, man, it combats all these. When I see how big God is, I don't want to seek ease and comfort anymore. I want to seek him. He's eternal. And he says, I can get eternal rewards. That's what I want. I want to surround myself with people who help me change because I want to change. I want to be more like that. This thing that I haven't been able to break out of, this sin cycle, he's big enough to free me from it. That's what I see. He's that big. God is amazing. And as we focus on him, our pride diminishes. The one final thought before we leave, because my absolute favorite thing about this story is that this is a radical, radical story of God pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. You see that, guys? He comes to Nebuchadnezzar chapter one, gives him an opportunity. Nebuchadnezzar turns it down. Chapter two, opportunity, Nebuchadnezzar turns it down. Chapter three, opportunity, Nebuchadnezzar turns it down. Chapter four, a dream, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't change. And yet God continues to pursue him because God is a God who pursues because he loves us. Do you know God is pursuing you this day? He is radically after you. And he does not want you to be destroyed by pride. He won't let you be destroyed by pride. He will keep seeking and keep knocking and pursue you and pursue you and pursue you. That's the gospel, that God left heaven to pursue us. Because my pride says I can make it. And God says, you need my help. And I need his help, amen? How cool is it that our God pursues us? That's what we're gonna celebrate here in a minute. We're gonna take communion. Here's what we're gonna celebrate. We have a God who's infinite and he's all powerful. He does what he wants and he's good. And he's in pursuit of your heart and your holiness because he loves you. Amen? Amen.